Good morning, sweet church. So good to be together with you. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15 today, and that's going to be on page uh, 821. Here we go. 821 in your blue Bibles in front of you. So if you've got a blue Bible in front of you, 821, we're going to be there in Matthew 15 this morning. So last week, EJ's sermon was from Romans 8. It was all about uh, the last word that EJ would give to us regarding God's love. We saw uh, this sweet picture of God's love in Romans 8 because God himself is love. He is love, and so he does love, and he loves us greatly from that love. Well, this morning, we're going to see... Uh, how God is humble or, or gracious to the humble, which is a parting hope for this church and a last word for us to consider. God is love and he shows grace to the humble. And I hope, sweet church, that from the passage this morning, which is difficult in some ways, that we will recognize that God shows grace to the humble and that will encourage us to never stop talking to Jesus and going to Jesus and hoping in Jesus because he is love, shows love, and shows grace to the humble. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 21 to 28. Before I read this, though, we just, we just sang along that, uh, that we're his enemies. And I wonder how many times many of, you, uh, of us Christians have, have, have said that we're enemies of God and if that strikes us at all. What if, what if we replace enemies with other, some, some other pejorative? What about uh, wrathful? What about sinners? What if God calls us sinners? But what if God actually called us dogs? I wonder if that feels more offensive than even enemies or sinner. And if it does, then praise God, because maybe now we're listening. This is the passage from Matthew 15, 15 to 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Church, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, how, how the depths and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God are beyond us. How unreachable are your judgments. And your paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been your counselor or even given anything to you that you should repay us? 
from you and through you and to you are all things. And to you be glory forever and ever, O God. Help us to understand your ways through this passage. To see that our ways are not like your ways. And humbly pursue you as, a, as you faithfully draw us. Oh God, we ask that you would create in us humble hearts to receive the word by faith now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I want to begin with some observations. Uh, EJ faithfully reminded us last week that context is key. Before we begin with context, let's just start with some obvious observations from the text. So, uh, So I see from verse 21 that Jesus comes into the region and meets a woman. I see that she's a Canaanite. These are important. We're going to connect all these observations later on, so let's kind of rehearse them in our mind. We see in verse 22 that she calls him the son of David. That's important. It's a very, it's a messianic title of Jesus. So she, a Canaanite, is using a messianic title. We see that she uh, has a daughter in verse 22 and that the daughter is demon-possessed. In 22, she also asks Jesus for help. Uh, she, she gives the Lord a legitimate request. She's not asking for a winning lottery ticket. She's not asking to be greatest in uh, her eighth grade class or to get an awesome job so she can be rich and famous. She's asking for the health, the spiritual health of her daughter. She's asking a legitimate request, many of which I have watched you parents pray the same, the spiritual good of the children. She's not appealing to any merit on her own. We, We can observe that. In verse 23, we see that Jesus is silent strikes us because we might expect him to say something here. We also see in the same verse that the the disciples plead with Jesus to send her away. We see that Jesus does not resolve her immediate need. Uh, Neither does he send her away, as the disciples suggest. And then in the next few verses, from, from 24 to 27, Jesus does finally answer, but with language that uh, is striking to us. In the language, he describes his purpose. He says he's coming for the children of Israel and not, uh, not inclined to give the children's food to dogs. Well, I observe that the woman doesn't grumble. Okay? We see what we see, but we also, see what we don't, uh, also realize what we don't see. We don't see her grumble. She doesn't respond with anything other than undying faith. She doesn't refute the Lord. She doesn't argue with him. She's in no way here a victim. She doesn't present herself as a victim. Nope. She uh, rather, I observe, she uses his language about dogs in her reply back to him. She doesn't refute the Lord. She affirms the Lord and his language. Not presenting herself as a victim here, either of circumstance, because of her child's condition, or in her situation with Jesus. During this conversation with Jesus, he's only coming for the children of Israel. She does not argue with that. Finally, we, uh, we can observe in verse 28 that the Lord affirms the woman's faith and that he heals her daughter. And I'm reminded of another occasion where Jesus spoke to a rich man. And when he left, he left sad. But in this case, this woman leaves happy. The Lord has heard her, he affirms her, and he heals her daughter. So some initial thoughts. I'm amazed by the woman's faith. She is heroic in her faith. Uh, It also amazes me that Jesus seems rather harsh here initially as as we read this. 
you know, we have these observations of the text, but I can also observe my own heart where I sort of cringe at parts during this conversation. And I think, is this the new evangelism? Is this, is this the new evangelism? Because there's a dark park right across the street here. And we've tried everything else in this church except for calling people dogs. My heart kind of cringes here. So why does Jesus do this? Why does he say this? And, and why does God include this in the scripture? And not only here, but also in Mark 7. So he does it twice. Why does he do this? Well, before we make any interpretations of our text this morning or draw any applications for what this means, I want us to read a little bit more of this chapter. Because again, EJ showed us context as king. And I think with some more context, a lot of these hard questions aren't actually hard. They're actually, they actually help amplify something very sweet. Very sweet. Uh, so let's read, uh, let's read what happens immediately before and just a scotch what happens after. We're going to start in Matthew 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. 1 through 20. And if you'll stay with me, I think it will help us all understand what's actually happening in this particular passage in 21 through 28. 15.1 starts with, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone else, or if anyone tells his father or mother, uh, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you say in this message? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Then he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Okay, so that is immediately before. Immediately after our passage, we read, um, and there's only one, one, a few verses here, so Chad doesn't have this. Uh, in um, 
Verse 29, right after he speaks with the woman, he says, uh, this, the scripture says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down. Uh, and, and, and great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified God of Israel. Then Jesus called to his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowds. Okay, and that's when he feeds the 4,000. So now we have read our text. We have some context, what happens immediately before and what happens immediately after. Some observations here from chapter 15, 1, the passage we just read. We see the religious leaders come to Jesus with a question about the disciples, namely why they don't follow the elders' tradition. Namely, they're supposed to wash their hands before they eat, which is not a bad idea if you're trying to keep from getting sick. But there was a different reason here, because they think that you take clean hands and you put things in your body that you're clean. They're trying to, it's a spiritual. It's not a matter of keeping germs off your hands so you don't get sick. That's, 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 that's actually good. The problem here is that they think they are spiritually clean because of what they're doing to their hands. It's not about their... Um, it's not about their physical health here. It's about their spiritual condition. That's, what, that's what's wrong here. The idea is reflected in the tradition is to keep yourself clean by what you put in your body. Okay, in verse 6, I observed that Jesus says that they are actually nullifying the word for the sake of their tradition. And then he cites the prophet Isaiah when he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. God was saying that such people worship him. It's true. But they worship him in vain. And in verse 12, the Pharisees are offended by Jesus. This is an important detail. The Pharisees are offended by Jesus when he is telling them what it means to be clean. They're offended by what Jesus has just said. Knowing full well that he's talking about them. And finally, in verse 18, we observe Jesus say that it's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of it that makes a person clean. Because it's from out of the heart, he's explaining, that the mouth speaks. The overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is exposed when what comes out of the heart is verbalized in the mouth, through the mouth. The matter of clean versus unclean is a matter of the heart. The matter of worship and godliness is a matter of the heart. Traditions and outward practices that miss the heart miss the point. And the religious leaders have badly missed the point. And when Jesus shows this to them, their response is not repentance. It's not sadness. It's not grief. It's not even epiphany. It's anger. It's offense. We need not miss that point if we're going to understand our text this morning. This is what happens immediately before the text and after. So now with all these observations, let's go back to our passage in verses 21 to 28 and consider again what's happening now and how we can apply it. Because as we're interpreting the discussion between Jesus and the woman, the matter of clean and unclean is relevant here. You see, Canaanites, which this woman is, 
They're not Jewish. They're not clean in a sense. Dogs are unclean. But the point of the matter that Jesus is, is pulling out here is the heart of a person is, is what's important. What's going on in the heart, what's demonstrated in the mouth, that's really where clean and unclean is, is, is demonstrated. The woman here is in direct contrast to the religious leaders that precede her. And I think this is the interpretive key. The religious leaders could not be persuaded to believe. And this dear woman could, be not, could not be dissuaded to believe. Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees, giving them sweet spiritual truths. And they're responding to him in all their piety, in all their morality, in all their goodness with offense. And here we have a dear woman who can't be offended because she's responding in faith. The former are offended by Jesus and they rebuff him. And the woman takes no offense. She actually draws nearer still to Jesus. She doesn't worship in vain with empty words, but in spirit and in truth from the heart that longs for God to make all things right. Consider how she approaches him. She calls him son of David. She's looking at Jesus as a Messiah. Not a walk in the town, charlatan, promising good, going to do some magic tricks and maybe make you feel better with some elixir. Not with some wishful thinking. No, she's referring to him very specifically, a Canaanite now, as a son of David. A messianic way of understanding the God who redeems all things. This is to whom she goes. And she's asking the son of David, the Messiah, for healing. She cannot be deterred. She will not be dissuaded. She will believe because she has faith. And that's not revealed until it's exposed in a hard circumstances. Contrasted with the Pharisees who were given everything. The covenants, the law, the scripture, their lineage, their traditions. They've got it all. And they miss God standing right before them. I'm sorry. If they were missed, they were just not recognizing. They actually see him and they're offended by him. Even worse. The Pharisees come to Jesus for answers. They come to him and they want answers. She comes to him and she wants mercy. She wants mercy. So let me give an example here to try to paint a picture of what I think is happening here. It's, uh, it's Mount Carmel. It's sort of a bizarre scene between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Many of you know it, but just conceptually what's happening is hundreds of prophets of Baal and Elijah on top of a mountain and the, the question is, who is God? And so Elijah says, build an altar, and I'll build an altar. And the God who answers by fire, he's God. And the scripture makes a point. Elijah's making a point. God is making a point to give, to, to stack the deck against the God of heaven. And so the prophets of Baal are, 
are given every opportunity to make a really awesome, tremendous altar. And they're cutting themselves in their zeal, in their, their ferocious re re religious fervor to call their God an answer by fire. And Elijah says, okay, here's my altar. Now uh, soak it in water. Dig a trench. Fill it with water. More water. More water. Soaking wet water. So that the, the deck is stacked so much against the God of heaven so that when God answers by fire and it, it soaks up every drop of water and every bit of the word is burned, it is clear he is the God of heaven. That is a clear and decisive answer. No mistake. And I think that's exactly what he's doing here with this woman. This woman is an altar. The situation making it as hard as it possibly can be. So that when the God who answers by fire from heaven speaks, it is clear. Compared to this puny altar the Pharisees have just made up. Tell us why your disciples don't wash their hands. And Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. The point of this is to put on display the goodness and the glory of God. In the sweetest way, the clearest way. So that when this woman responds by faith, you see the beauty of God and God's faithfulness on display in a way that is otherwise often missed by the religious leaders, by the disciples that want to send her away, by us. But not by this woman. <laughs> no, not by this woman. So I think that is a helpful framework for us to understand especially as it ties in with what EJ showed us last week, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing separates her from him. He's not actually being cruel or harsh. He's extolling her and lifting her up in a proclamation of his glory to save her. All right, so some considerations here. Not quite to applications, still thinking through the text beginning with some observations and now trying to make some good interpretations. We're going to get to applications soon, but let's consider here verse, in verse 24, he says that he was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. That sounds exclusive. In our day and age, being exclusive is just another pejorative with all sorts of other awful things. We should be careful, though, because Jesus came to save the lost sheep of Israel. It's exclusive. And then context, though, in the context, if we've got a map, he goes out of his way to save her. So he says he's only come to save the lost sheep of Israel. But if we have a map, Chad, um, next. If we have a map, let's, let's understand what's happening here. Because we read in context, Jesus is here on the Sea of Galilee when he's talking to the Pharisees. When they're not listening, when they're not responding by faith, it's all happening here. 
Tyre and Sidon, somewhere in this region, is where the scripture makes a point to say that he went. And in context, right after this, what happens is he returns back to the Sea of Galilee. Now, wait a second. Does he really go out of his way all the way up to Tyre and Sidon just to say, I didn't come here to, to help you? What if he doesn't go out of his way at all? What if he goes there specifically for him? What if the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go and find the one? Now, obviously, I don't know. I wasn't there. But twice in the scripture, here in, Mac, in uh, uh, Mark 7, it shows Jesus here talking to the Pharisees and then here talking to this dear woman and then back here to feed the 4,000. He only goes up there seemingly for one person. For her. He's not being harsh at all. As he's speaking with her, saying what appears to say, I don't have the time of day for you. He's actually built his itinerary around her. It's so sweet in the context. So I don't think he's going out of his way at all. And I also don't think she's a dog. I think she's actually a lamb. <laughs> she's actually a lamb. But you don't know that until this happens. Uh, she's actually a lamb. She's a Gentile, that's sure. That's, that's for sure. Uh, that, there's no mistaking in that. She is a Gentile, but she's also a daughter of Abraham, who against all hope, Abraham in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it was said to him, so shall your offspring be. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed God. And against all hope, this dear woman is in hope believing that Jesus is the Messiah, and she can give healing. She's a Gentile, yes, but she's a lamb. She is a child of God. Not because of what she does with her hands before she eats, but because of what's happening in her heart by the work of the Spirit. She's pleading to Jesus for her child. And Jesus is looking at her as his own. She also is a child of God, and he came to rescue her. And now in context, consider how the words of the Pharisees are exposed. Right, Their own hearts expose their hearts. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, what's in their heart, not what you see with your eyes, not with the way they present their bodies or their lives, but their hearts are in full display with the way they answer Jesus. This dear woman's heart is on full display in the way that she answers Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has just told us. The whole point of this is that the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's on the inside of the heart, that's, what's make, that's what makes you clean or unclean. And what's on the inside of the heart makes its way out through your profession, your expression. The words reveal the heart, okay? What if also with God? What if, what if God's words also reveal God's hearts? Well, here we have Jesus, who is the word. 
made flesh. He not only walks from Galilee to Sidon, he leaves heaven and dwells among us. The word of God made flesh, revealing, exposing, communicating the heart of God who loves to save sinners, who finds his sheep, who comes for his children, who will not leave them alone, who draws near to the humble. This is the heart of our God. He doesn't go out of his way to save her. He's act, she's actually the reason why he came at all. That's us. For all who call on the Lord with an undying love. For all who call on him by faith, we are all his children. We are more Canaanite and Gentile than we are Hebrew and Jewish. But by faith, we call upon God in the same way this dear woman does. And we are her brothers in Christ. We are children of God. When we respond to the word of God in the scripture and the word of God made flesh, when we respond by faith, no matter what the circumstances, we prove who we are on the inside, God's people. And so I want to ask us to consider now how he draws out this faith. He's drawing it out. He's not destroying faith. No, he's growing it. He's nurturing it. Every rebuff that he gives is received by faith and used to refine her faith. It's not so with the Pharisees. The ones that Isaiah was talking about when he said they honor God with their lips, her heart is laid bare, it's exposed. Her faith in God is exposed and his faithfulness towards his people is on display. Could it be that blessed are the poor in spirit? Is really theirs the kingdom of heaven? Or what about in 1 Peter 5, where God's word says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. At church, I know it's hard to watch sometimes. It's hard to watch. But it is God's way. And not to make it easier, but to give some context so we'll have wisdom when we see it in others and in our own life. Recall Job, who said, Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Or Jacob, who said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Or what about Peter? When Jesus gives hard teaching and he invites everyone to leave, the disciples included, Peter, you going to go? Because now's your chance. And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You're God. You have the words of eternal life. And if all that weren't enough, what about Jesus himself in the garden? Oh, God, if there's any other way, Father. Please. But then, then he says, not my will but your will be done. This is the way of our God. It is not like our way. It doesn't make 
it doesn't make walking around sense for most of us. But let us not be like the Pharisees and demand Jesus to explain all this stuff. Because consider how this woman doesn't know any of this. She doesn't know what's going on in Galilee. She doesn't know we're going to be reading about her account 2,000 years later. She doesn't know any of this. But by faith, she knows that's the, that's this, that's the voice of my shepherd. Here's God right here in front of me. I am not letting him go until he blesses me. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Not my will, but yours be done. But God, you are good, and what you do is good. This is the encouragement for us today, church. So let's get to a few points of application. Church, my first encouragement to us is to draw near to God. And he will draw near to us. Whatever it feels like, whatever it looks like, it is true. Okay? This dear woman does not stop talking to Jesus when he is silent. She doesn't go away when the disciples encourage her to leave. She's longing and hoping for Jesus. And she doesn't stop going to Jesus and talking to Jesus. And in a humble heart, she draws near and is worshiping, even as he is apparently wounding her. So then in due time, he lifts her up. So church, it's a point of application. Don't stop talking to Jesus when he is clearly silent, because he is sometimes. When it is, seems harsh, which oftentimes does, don't stop going to Jesus. Don't stop talking to Jesus. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. I think the Greens are a good example of this. I, many of us, watched them uh, laboring hard for their little girl at one time. Sorry, I can't. I'm sorry. All right, next application. Sorry. Sorry. There's a good application there, but I can't make it. Sorry. All right, so next application is we need to read the scripture in context. Okay? When we first read our, our passage, and when we uh, compared to when we finished reading the entire chapter, I think most of us thought differently about the text we were looking at this morning specifically. So let's use this as a little example, okay? When we read scripture, we want to read the scripture in context. It's a good hermeneutical tool when we're trying to understand the scripture. You read the scripture in its context. It's immediate context, it's biblical context, historical context, the context of the entire scripture. All of that's true, yes. And also, we should understand God's providence in context. We need to understand God's momentary light afflictions in light of the overall mercy that he's given us. We need to understand God saving us 
when we were yet enemies, Christ dying for us. We need to remember whatever momentary and slight affliction we are enduring in the moment in light of what he's done for us. We need to remember what he's doing in our life now in light of the big promise. Remember, he said he's gone ahead to prepare a place for us because this world's not our home. We need to understand every momentary affliction in light of what God has done for us and what God is doing with us for heaven. In the same way we interpret scripture in context, church, I want, us, I want to encourage you to, to interpret God's actions towards you, towards us, in light of a broader context. Things aren't always clear in Scripture. Things are hard to understand. For example, here, the woman initially doesn't seem clean. And here, initially, Jesus doesn't seem kind. <laughs> but in context, both of these assumptions or initial observations are untrue. So, application. When God seems ungodly, ridiculous thing to say. But when he seems, when God, when Jesus seems to do something that seems unchristlike, well, then take note because he's about to explain something about how his ways are not like our ways and his thoughts are not like our thoughts. And he's got something to teach us, which is what he was doing on Mount Carmel and what I think he's doing right here in this text with this dear woman. So in a similar way, we need to understand this scripture in light of God's mercy towards us. Now, when we read this, we have closure in the text. We see something of the whole story in a few verses that oftentimes takes years to play out in our life. It's, it's probably not presumptuous to say that Almost all of us are dealing with some long struggle that has not been resolved. It's not the same struggle, but it doesn't need to be. The point is that it's a struggle, and it's unresolved. And I hope to encourage you from this text this morning that there was a moment here where this woman is talking with Jesus, and he's not answering. He's not immediately giving her the good thing she's asking for. There's not resolution in the moment. And if you can see that from the text and you see how it ends, then perhaps, perhaps you can be patient a little longer and humbly draw near to God, knowing that, that God is not done yet. So, for example, I ask, why would God shut down this church? I, I don't know. I don't understand it. It breaks my heart. But I learned from this text there are other things going on beyond what I can immediately see. She has, so, so who's in view in this, in this passage, but not immediately here, is somewhere, well, there's a little girl that's being possessed by a demon, which is sort of the genesis of this whole thing. I don't know her name. I don't even know where she lives. Somewhere in the region. She's not immediately here. But it's because this little girl has a demon and her mother, out of love for her little girl, is, runs into Jesus. That now you can see her life contrasted with the Pharisees and you see God's glory on display in a way 
that a little girl with a demon in Sidon has no idea what's going on. What I'm saying is that whatever is happening in the moment, there's context and other things happening that are beyond our understanding, beyond our sight. And this woman didn't need any of it. She just drew near to Jesus. So whatever I don't understand about why God would shut us down, I don't know. But let's draw near to Jesus and praise him and extol him and trust him to do what is good in the moment and to lift us up in due time. That is enough. That is enough. My encouragement to all of us is to consider the scripture in the context, God's actions in their broader context, to not need to know every detail like the Pharisees asking about, uh, about cleanliness rules and just trust that what God is doing is good and he's working it out for good. Another point of application for, uh, for you kiddos, maybe for others, Let's not miss the point. The Pharisees missed the point. Moralism was their point. Their highest virtue is not drawing near to God, but by just being better people. And this is where it gets tricky. It's not bad to wash your hands. It's not bad to have traditions. It's not bad to be moral. In fact, we should all do most of this more often. The problem is when we root our identity in these things. And we begin to think that this is why we're good or this is why we're acceptable to God. This is why we're clean. That's when a good thing turns into an idol and becomes catastrophic to our heart. And so there's some encouragement for kiddos, you who go to school and you try really hard to make good grades and to not make your teachers mad and to not say anything that sounds like a bully or maybe... To, to help others. Uh, you try to be good at school. All that's good. That's true. Yes. But that is not at any, for any reason why God would ever love you. Because you made a B and not a C. Or got perfect attendance. That's not why God loves any of us. When this woman draws near to Jesus, she's not pleading any merit on her own. She's simply going to the son of David who can save her daughter. She's going with a humble heart. So kiddos, be good, absolutely. But not because you think it makes God happy, but because we are all image bearers of God and he is good. And if our thinking is right, when we are good, we understand something more of the goodness of God. Not because it makes us Christians, because it gives us some idea into the God who made all things. So beyond moralism, there is faith. Uh, next, her hope is exposed in part because of her brokenness over the little one. So I think a point of application here, as we look at our children, as we look around the people that we love, if there is a brokenness in our heart for them, that ought to drive us to Jesus. If there's any brokenness in your life, the point of application is to go to Jesus. Next, for those who are not Christians, uh, I want to encourage you with uh, Proverbs 3.33. This says, towards the scorner, he, meaning God, shows himself scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. 
the religious leaders here were good in their own eyes, but they were just men. They were not good before God in heaven. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, and you, you hear the text, or maybe even today, and you think, that sounds weird. I'm not on board with that. This religious stuff is good for other people, but not for me. If you scorn God, then Jesus' response to the Pharisees is going to be more and more what you hear. Mockery. But what if this way? What if you're here and you're not a Christian? And you recognize that the heart is the matter. And you're trying to understand what your heart is, or maybe you don't. Just listen to the word you're saying. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you. Listen to your words. What do they say? If you're here today and you're not in Christ, you're not breaking the law, you're not in jail, basically life is going okay, you're fine. But the words that are coming out of your heart, listen to them, to your siblings, to your friends, to your parents, to yourself. What do they say about your heart? And regardless of how well your teachers grade you, or regardless of how well your employer affirms you, what does that mean who you are before God? If you're not a Christian here, I would encourage you to recognize that the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen to your words, and if at some point you realize these words are vile, and maybe it's because they express something that I'm hiding on the inside, this vileness on the inside, you can, just like this woman, go to God by faith and ask him to heal you, to change your heart. Not clean your hands, not cut your hair, not take away a tattoo, not make you better in school, not do any of that stuff, to change the heart and make you new. If you're here and you're not a Christian, listen to your words, recognize the words, reflect your heart, and if the heart is offensive to you, then go to the one who can clean it. And then finally, an encouragement for the church here. Jesus found this woman. He moved heaven and earth to be the word made flesh and dwell among us. And then, on seemingly went way out of his way, out of the region of Galilee, up into Sidon, just to walk right back down to Galilee. He went and found this woman. Church, he will find you where you go. He will keep us to the end. He will preserve us to the end. He will not let us fall. He is our shepherd and he can lead us wherever he wants to. And he will come and find us when it's time. He went and found this woman. She was trusting in him. Nothing could separate her from his love. And so I want to leave you this with this church, and that is to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Because he loves to give grace to the humble. Don't stop talking to Jesus. Don't stop going to Jesus. Don't stop hoping in Jesus. Because he's good and he's doing good. Better good than we can even understand. Though it is hard at times, God has intended and designed something wonderful for this woman, for her daughter, and for all who have the same faith of Abraham. 
to against all hope, in hope, believe that God is good.